Welcome to Skim This. It's Earth Day, but it kind of feels like Earth Week. This week, we'll break down President Biden's new climate commitment and what went down at a global climate summit on Zoom. But there's a lot more than just climate news this week. In Minneapolis, a jury found Derek Chauvin guilty of the murder of George Floyd. We'll tell you how this historic trial could impact law enforcement trials in the future. We've also got the latest about fake vaccines, global travel warnings, and a sleep study you may have texted to your parents in a panic. And for fun, we'll end the show with a viewer's guide on what to binge before Sunday's Academy Awards. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. Let's skim this. On Tuesday, a jury in Minneapolis found Derek Chauvin, a former Minneapolis police officer, guilty for the murder of George Floyd. Even before Chauvin's trial was over, it was being talked about as a pivotal moment in the racial justice movement, and the three-week trial attracted national and international media coverage. After the jury deliberated for just 10 hours, the world watched this week as they convicted Chauvin on all three charges against him, second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. In the wake of Tuesday's conviction, a lot of people have been saying the outcome of this trial isn't justice. Justice would be George Floyd still being alive. What this was, was a single instance of accountability for law enforcement. But even still, we wanted to know, what set this trial apart? How could it impact future trials? And what might systemic reform of law enforcement look like? For those answers, we called up Sharon Fairley, a professor at the University of Chicago Law School. What specifically went right for the prosecution in this case? Well, they just put in a very, very strong case. Obviously, it started with the strength of the video evidence. There was nine minutes of watching exactly what happened, and that was really hard to, to argue with. But they did more, right? They didn't just leave it to the video. They had very, very strong evidence in terms of their use of force experts, experts also on the issue of what caused Mr. Floyd's death. They had the witnesses come in and actually describe what they saw personally. So it wasn't just the video. We had firsthand accounts of what they were seeing in real time. So the prosecution just really put in a very, very strong case. As you were watching and reading about the trial and its coverage, was there any one moment or testimony that stood out to you in particular? Well, I think it would have to be the young lady who took, took the video. I mean, her story, her testimony was heartbreaking. I, I think that it just showed the courage that she had and the insight that she had to say, there's something really wrong going on here and I need to do something about it. And I just, I thought that that was really compelling. There was talk of the blue wall crumbling in this case, the blue wall being the tradition of law enforcement staying silent if and when one of them breaks the rules. How important did that prove to be? I think it was very important. You know, I can't speak for the jury, but I think it was probably very compelling for those jurors to hear his colleagues come and stand before them and say, no, we don't do it this way. That, that's, not what, that's not what we're about. That was way wrong. I, I think that that had to be compelling testimony and very, very important. You know, there are some critics who say systems will turn over one of its own every once in a while when they know that doing so will create the right outcome or might benefit them in the short term. But that's a lot different than colleagues regularly policing and intervening each other's behavior. What do you think about that point? 
I, I hear that. I think, you know, I guess if people are asking, was he kind of just the sacrificial lamb and we're going to move on from this and just go back to the way we were? Is that possible? Absolutely, yes. It is true. Law enforcement officers definitely are sometimes reluctant to hold each other accountable. They don't want to be judged and they have a system where they re they rely on each other for their own personal safety. And so, you know, sometimes they're reluctant to, to call their colleagues out. But I think that that's why when, when we look at police reform on a broader basis, we have to develop systems where accountability becomes a core value so that officers understand that they do need to hold each other accountable and they feel comfortable holding each other accountable. Now, that process may take some time to get there, but that I think ultimately has to be one of the core goals of police reform, where accountability is essential and is essential core belief amongst them and not just the outsiders trying to hold them accountable. I'm curious what you would say to people who say that any system of police accountability in which the police or government has a role in developing those accountability standards is going to be biased in favor of authority. So, you know, when it comes to policing and police reform and accountability, we can't leave the police out of that equation in terms of figuring out what's right. I mean, that we have to understand that there are public safety interests that we have to address. And we also have to respect their need to, to defend themselves, right? And to keep themselves safe. So it's, it's not an either or, it, it's gotta be a collaborative process. Just a quick note here. Last year, the police department put out a statement after Floyd's arrest and death, noting that he'd resisted arrest quote, appeared to be suffering from medical distress and was later taken to a hospital where he, quote, died a short time later. Now that this trial is over, has it surprised you with what we know and what we've seen to read what the Minneapolis Police Department initially said about Floyd's death in their initial report? Yes. Well, I think that's another reason why this trial is so historic in nature in that by the time we get to trial, we see the department coming out and testifying and saying, no, this was wrong. This was terribly wrong what he did. And so where, wherever they started out, they ultimately you know, got to the right place. And I think what's going to be really interesting to see what happens from here is when Mr. Chauvin's colleagues who were at the scene, when they are tried in August for their being accomplices to, to murder I think it'll be really interesting to see how the, that trial proceeds, because I think that that's really going to send a message to the law enforcement community that you have a duty to intervene. You absolutely have a duty when something is going wrong like this, and that if you don't, you absolutely will be held accountable. So I think that's where we look to next to see where this case goes. Illinois passed criminal justice and police reforms lately. For our national audience, could you highlight what some of those specific reforms were? Yeah, so in the Illinois statute, I think the most important piece of it was the concept of decertification. Prior to the enactment of this statute, there were very, very limited circumstances in which an officer could lose his license to be a law enforcement officer. And so they beefed up that process and created a process to be able to say, if you commit certain kinds of misconduct, then you're going to lose your license. 
We've had officers who've done, you know, some concerning things and then just gone to another police department because they aren't held accountable in that way. So that's a big piece of it. The other big piece of it is getting rid of the affidavit requirement for complaint investigations. And there are some other provisions that address the police officer's bill of rights that have been changed. There's just a lot of things in that bill that are really helpful. I would say the one thing that still has to be worked on, in my view, is the law governing the use of force. And I know there's a, some discussion in the statute about some work to be done on that, and they didn't leave it completely out, but they didn't actually change the law. There's a constitutional standard when it comes to the use of force. In my view, that's pretty low standard. And so some states have raised the bar and said, no, we're not going to allow use of force in some circumstances. So the biggest one, in my view, that has been the most problematic is the idea that you can use deadly force against a person who's fleeing. Right. So many states have said, no, we're not going to allow that anymore. We're just going to say you can only use deadly force when you have an imminent threat against the officer or someone else. And that really, I think, is a very important legal concept when it comes to limiting the use of force, because as we've seen, it can be very problematic, the use of deadly force in the context of a, a chase. So that that's an important change that's been made in some states. You created and built Chicago's Civilian Office of Police Accountability. What was that like? Were there times when your emotional reaction to a specific incident kind of took over? I think that anytime anyone is exposed to video material like you see in in Mr. Floyd's case or in Adam Toledo's case, there is an emotional response. I'm a person, I'm a mother, you know, and so I would have that kind of response and then would have to kind of acknowledge that and then move on and say, okay, what do we have to do here, right? What do we have to do to address this and move on from there? And so it can be frustrating. And I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, what we've experienced over the past year and certainly in the past couple of weeks is just a level of frustration. Why do these things keep happening? And it's important to not be overwhelmed by that sense of frustration and continue to focus on, well, how can we make change and how can we support the people who are really at the forefront of that change? Police reform erupts out of some kind of scandal, a crisis. There's an incident that occurs and people become engaged on the topic. And so a lot of these changes are the result of activism. It is a political process though. You have to be able to get the political consensus often to create these systems or enhance these systems, which can sometimes be a challenge. So I think that's what's so historic about uh, Mr. Floyd's death and his case is that the initial reaction was, you know, when the video came out last summer was obviously shock and outrage But what was most important is that that outrage was translated into activism and a commitment to pushing through change. And change has happened. Thank you so much, Sharon. We really appreciate it. Of course. All right, let's get to a couple of the headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, A buildup of Russian forces along the border with Ukraine is reportedly setting off alarms for the U.S. and its allies. Here's the context. Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014 and continues to illegally occupy parts of Ukraine, 
and there are fears Russia could want more. Ukraine's government claims around 80,000 troops are now stationed nearby. And that had Ukraine and its diplomatic friends saying, hey, that is way too close for comfort. But on Thursday, Vladimir Putin gave the Ukrainian government a little peace of mind because Russia announced they're gonna start pulling back a number of those troops by May 1st, and that they were just doing, quote, military exercises all along. But it's not all good news for Ukraine. Russia's still planning to leave its weapons nearby. All right, next headline. The U.S. State Department is increasing its do not travel guidance this week to about 80% of countries worldwide. Here's what's happening. Early on in the pandemic, the State Department warned Americans against traveling to, well, basically anywhere in the world. But in August, the Trump administration revoked that blanket warning, saying conditions were starting to improve in some places. Now, broad warnings against travel are back, and most of the world is on the bad list. As of this week, the State Department says just one country, the landlocked Himalayan nation of Bhutan, is safe enough for Americans to be able to, quote, exercise normal precautions and just 16 others qualify for a level two advisory, exercise increased caution. And while a few of those, like Fiji, Belize, or Thailand, are popular tourist spots, many of Americans' favorite destinations, like Mexico, Canada, Italy, France, and Spain, are each labeled do not travel as they deal with high rates of COVID infections. So while cheap plane tickets are tempting, maybe hold off on that vacation. Speaking of COVID problems, Pfizer says it's identified fake versions of its COVID vaccine in Mexico and Poland. Here's some context. Turns out it's not just vaccination cards that are being faked. Authorities in Mexico and Poland have seized suspicious files of COVID vaccines that Pfizer confirmed as being fake. According to the Wall Street Journal, around 80 people in Mexico paid about $1,000 each to receive these fake vaccines. So far, they are reportedly unharmed. Meanwhile, scientists think the fake vaccines found in Poland are actually an anti-wrinkle treatment. So far, fake COVID vaccines haven't been spotted in the US, but the global law enforcement agency Interpol warned back in December 2020, the pandemic has provided organized crime groups with plenty of new opportunities to get rich. Okay, our final headline is one you might've panic texted your parents. Sleeping six hours or less is linked to higher dementia risk, according to a new study. Here's what we know and don't know. The researchers behind this study, which was published in the Journal of Nature Communications, tracked people in their 50s and 60s. They wanted to see if sleeping less than six hours was linked to a higher risk of dementia than people who slept for seven hours. And after tracking almost 8,000 people for 25 years, they say the answer is yeah. On average, the group that slept less were 30% more likely to be diagnosed with dementia. Scientists say, look, correlation isn't causation. This pattern exists, but it doesn't necessarily mean one thing causes the other. But it could be an important indicator of who's at risk of developing dementia or Alzheimer's as they age. So as one sleep expert told the Wall Street Journal, soak up natural light during the day, hold off on eating an hour before bed, light a candle, take a shower, put the phone away, and before you know it, you'll be done with reading the headlines. The U.S. is apparently back and ready to take climate change seriously again. The signs are unmistakable. 
The science is undeniable, but the cost of inaction keeps mounting. The United States isn't waiting. We are resolving to take action. That was President Biden on Thursday, kicking off a virtual climate summit and announcing new U.S. emissions targets. There was actually so much climate news on Thursday, we called up an expert to help us break it down. I'm Helen Mountford. I'm the Vice President of Climate and Economics at the World Resources Institute. The first thing we needed explained was the U.S.'s new NDC, which it turns out are three pretty important letters. We absolutely love our acronyms in the climate community. An NDC is a nationally determined contribution, which means what each country themselves will commit to doing by 2030 in order to help achieve our global commitment to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. It's almost like a New Year's commitment, but you do it with all of your friends. The new NDC Biden announced on Thursday aims to cut greenhouse gas emissions by at least 50% by the year 2030. Mountford says while that number feels pretty abstract, it will likely lead to concrete changes. One of the things that's already starting to happen, but they're going to accelerate, is the phase out of coal power from the electricity sector. That's going to have to move very quickly. And I do think there's going to be this rapid move to net zero power by 2035. So that means a lot more renewables in the system. We're also seeing a lot of investments in energy efficiency in households and offices and workplaces. That's going to save uh, money for householders or for businesses. It's going to actually reduce our demands on energy, and it's also going to create jobs. So that was one part of the climate story in Washington this week. The other was the global climate summit Biden organized over Zoom. Countries usually meet at the end of the year to talk about climate change, so Biden putting this on the calendar now was more of a last-minute potluck than a catered affair. But Mountford says even though the event isn't over, it's clear that a lot of countries took the invitation seriously. Already it's definitely a success. This has been a really important forcing moment to get countries to think about what they could do to step up action. To have a really successful potluck, you you want not only to have, you know, the case that not everybody brings the same chicken salad that nobody wanted to eat in the first place, but you actually have entrees, you've got some great mains, some vegetables, some nice desserts, etc. Kudos to Helen for running with our potluck metaphor there. But for real, it wasn't just the U.S. that showed up with new plans on the climate. The European Union put into law that they will reduce their emissions by 55% by 2030. The UK came with a whole new target. By 2035, they'll reduce their emissions by 78%. This morning, Japan said they're going to reduce emissions by 46%, Canada by 40 to 45%. So the US has been out there trying to get other countries to step up. And we've seen some of that already delivered this week. To learn more about the fight against climate change, our newsletter, The Daily Skim, just put out a big recap to commemorate Earth Day. We've left a link to their feature report in our show notes. Remember those memes last year about dolphins swimming in the Venice canals? There was all of the nature is healing memes, <laughs> I think, early on in the pandemic. That's Kendra Pierre-Lewis. She's a senior reporter with the Spotify Gimlet podcast, How to Save a Planet. And she told us, don't always believe what you meme. 
and that was coming both because people were driving less. So in some places, air pollution was actually better. That wasn't uniformly true. Because of the rebound effects, like electricity usage may have gone up in some places and depending on how they generate their electricity, that leads to more pollution. The other, the biggest shift actually was air travel. That was where a huge chunk of the emissions cuts came from. But even at the peak, it wasn't anywhere near the level of emissions that we need to reduce to sort of stay on track. Even though it felt like we were staying inside more and not doing much, the planet wasn't miraculously healed. In fact, a new report this week says that while global emissions did drop last year, emissions increases this year will pretty much cancel all that out. And beyond 2021, bad climate behavior people hoped would stop because of the pandemic is just gonna accelerate. And even worse, some habits we picked up for safety's sake have already introduced entirely new problems. In terms of like the biggest shift in consumer behavior, I think is in masks, right? And masks are now this huge source of plastic pollution that we don't really talk about. You see it all over the place. People litter their masks now. And that is like huge. That's just like a huge amount of consumption that we weren't doing a year ago. That's some of the bad news. But Pierre Lewis says over the last year, the environmental movement in the U.S. has started to shift focus. What I think has evolved is recognizing that the land that we need to protect is also the land where we live. So it's no longer about just saving the polar bears, it's about saving humanity. And then the other thing that I think that is sort of shifting within the environmental movement is recognizing increasingly that it needs to be intersectional. The mainstream environmental movement in the United States has long been predominantly white and predominantly affluent. And I think just because of the scope and the scale of what we're facing with climate change, that's really begun to change, but it's still early days. You may have heard the term environmental justice thrown around. Environmental justice sort of broadly is a recognition that certain communities are, have been historically disproportionately harmed by environmental pollution. Pierre Lewis says you can see examples of this all over the U.S. When the decision was made to create the national highway system, they deliberately paved over predominantly black and brown communities, and that had two effects. One is to destroy those communities, but two, the communities that remained, you now have a giant highway going through your backyard. So that is air pollution effect, which leads to asthma, that is like heavy metal effects, it has all of these downstream effects. Highways are far from the only example of this. Green spaces, right? So like, do you have a park? Is your park all asphalt? Does it have green? So that's just like another example of like inequity. Because we know that people who live near green spaces, it just have a multitude of benefits, but one kind of easy one is it reduces how hot your community gets. There's even a term for this particular environmental justice issue, heat inequity. It's when neighborhoods of color, which often see far less investment in tree planting and public parks, are more at risk of extreme heat events and the health risks that come along with them. Addressing even one of the many issues that are part of the environmental justice movement can seem overwhelming and too big for us to solve as individuals. But considering Kendra reports for a podcast literally called How to Save a Planet, we figured she'd be a good place to start. We know this from the data is that your individual consumption only accounts for so much. And so my philosophy in general is we should generally try to be frugal. We should try to live lighter on the land, but you should automate it, right? Like pick the things that are you're going to fight that are going to be your battles. And that's 
where you kind of, you set it and you forget it, right? And then your active energy should actually be spent on doing things that are socially beneficial to the climate because we all need to get on the same page in order to move the needle on climate change. And there are multiple ways that you can get engaged with it sort of as a society. And it's about picking where you want to spend your energy and where you want to spend your talents, which is a separate conversation, but not spending nine hours picking out the perfect pair of sustainable genes. Like that doesn't really benefit anyone. So instead of overthinking your online shopping or paying too much attention to companies that say they're, quote, sustainable on Instagram, maybe try this instead. Go to your community planning board meeting. In many cases, the only people who go to these meetings are developers. And that's a problem because if you want to talk about zoning, if you want to talk about transportation planning, a lot of that gets decided at these planning board meetings. And that's where you can make like a really big impact. And now because of the pandemic, a lot of them are on Zoom. So it's also something that you can easily log on to after work or something. So, well, even though today is technically Earth Day. Having a day a year where we at least are like, hey, (laughs) pay attention is really helpful. But, you know, it is just a day and we live on the planet 365 days a year. To hear more from Pierre Lewis and her climate reporting colleagues on topics ranging from what's up with eating beef to how to think about your carbon footprint, check out How to Save a Planet on Spotify. Before we go, we wanted to talk about Live from Santa Monica, California, the annual Academy Awards. The Oscars are this Sunday. But don't worry, you're not alone if you thought, it's the end of April. Those things should have happened a while ago, right? The Academy Awards this year is three months later than usual. It's not going to be the usual huge audience at the Dolby Theater. It's going to be more of an intimate kind of cocktailish party with tables set up for the nominees. That's Nicole Sperling. She's a media reporter for The New York Times. And she says this year, the stars are just like us. They have to social distance too. A number of them will gather at Union Station in LA, with others joining virtually from smaller events around the world. Not even A-list celebs can dial in from their living rooms, which could mean a more interesting and higher quality show for all of us at home. No Zoom, no cameras going into people's homes. However, Steven Soderbergh is the producer of the show. Steven Soderbergh is probably one of the most innovative filmmakers around. He's a guy who will shoot a movie on an iPhone. He's a guy who will make a big budget caper like Ocean's Eleven and then make like tiny little films. He's already talking about the show in much different terms than we've heard in the past. He talks about it as a three-act movie. He talks about his cast as, as opposed to saying who are the presenters of the awards. So I'm interested to see what it's gonna look like. If you've kept up with the movie buzz over the past year, you may have noticed you were able to do a lot of your Oscars homework without leaving the couch. That's because the pandemic has accelerated a trend that's rocked the entire entertainment industry, the turf war between movie theaters and the new kids on the block, streaming companies. The big tension that was happening and had been happening in the movie business for decades was this fight between exhibition, the theater chains, and the studios, because theater chains wanted the movies in their theaters as long as possible. 
Netflix, Amazon, the streamers, they didn't even want to play this game. Netflix specifically was not interested in that. They're like, we have subscribers. That's all we care about. We're bringing them our movies first. And the only reason they even entered these conversations with exhibitors was because of filmmakers. Because filmmakers like Martin Scorsese want to be in movie theaters. That's what they made their movies for. The pandemic hits, all the rules are thrown out the window and everything changes. And a lot of studios who had a backlog of movies and they needed to generate some revenue, started selling those movies to the streamers directly. One middle ground that became popular last year involves letting some movies still open in theaters, but also giving people the option to watch that same movie at home without the long wait between theater release and streaming. It helps that streaming companies attracted millions of new subscribers since the pandemic began, which could mean the potential audience for movies is bigger than ever. And that could lead to more diverse stories being told on screen. I do think that diversity has improved with this. And I think Netflix led the charge in a lot of ways because they realized how different their subscriber base is and they can provide a niche content for a group of people who like South Korean thrillers. And then they realize that the more diversity they can have on their service, the more eyeballs they can get coming back and staying there. So I think that's that has been one of the benefits of streaming. Like on my TV, it's documentaries, but also Gossip Girl. But since the Oscars are about treating movies like art and not stuff that autoplays, we still wondered, are we losing the magic of movies when they're just playing on our home screens? <laughs> When we're at home, we're not nearly as invested. The lights are on, the dog barks, the kid needs to be put to bed. All those distractions happen. So it's unfortunate. And I think it's just kind of goes part and parcel with like how distracted modern day life is nowadays. Like, are you ever focused on one thing at one time? I know I'm not. And it's unfortunate. I'm hoping that theaters will survive, will be reinvented, that people will maybe appreciate that experience more because it's a time to be disconnected from everything else. But regardless of your at-home movie setup, crunch time is still crunch time. The Oscars are this Sunday. And if you want to avoid feeling like the whole ceremony is about movies you haven't seen, we asked Sperling what to binge before the show starts. I still do believe that Nomadland is going to win Best Picture, so I think you should watch it. I think it's a beautiful film. But there are a lot of, I thought there were a lot of good films this year, even if they were the smaller ones. And one I loved so much was Minari, which is, it's just a beautiful movie about a Korean family living in Oklahoma and trying to make it work. And the kid in it is just to die for. And the it's just, it's a beautiful story. It's small, it's a tiny little story, but it's really, I highly recommend it. If you want to roll out a red carpet at home this year, the Oscars start at 8 p.m. Eastern on Sunday. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was produced and hosted by me, Alex Carr. If you've already seen Minari or Nomadland, I highly recommend that you check out Promising Young Woman. If you like pastel colors or revenge stories, or you've ever seen Killing Eve, this movie's for you. The senior producer of Skim This is Luke Vargas. Check out First Cow, which is kind of part Oregon Trail, part baking show. We had additional production help this week from Kira Long. I loved Becodao. It's a Brazilian Western with a really dark sense of humor. This episode was engineered by Peter Bonaventure. 
I'm going with Greyhound. Tom Hanks is being hunted by German U-boats in the middle of the Atlantic. It's pretty cool. The Skims Hat of Audio is Graylin Brashear. My pick is Emma. Best costumes ever. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com.